0: If you haven't been with us, we've been uh, working through the book of Mark and kind of approaching it really as the discipleship manual that it is, but taking it in larger chunks so we can see how these sections fit together and get the main teachings. Hopefully, Hopefully this is equipping you to be able to read it with somebody else and disciple them. I want to start this morning by asking the question, how would people describe your devotion to jesus if a person looking from the outside at your life had to describe your devotion to jesus in one word what would that word be what would they say would it be um uh, fair okay would it be good solid would they uh, say, I don't know, know kind of minimal? Would they say unclear? I'm not quite sure what his devotion is. But they say, you know, it's invisible. I didn't even know they were Christian. What would that word be? Would it be political? Would it be quiet? Lukewarm? What would it be? I bring this up because at the center of our text today, there is a woman whose devotion to Jesus is described by Jesus Himself as beautiful. Her devotion in Jesus' eyes is beautiful. When I read that this week, I was thought, man, I hope, I pray that someday I'd be seen by Jesus as having such a devotion. Right now, I'm afraid mine might be described as, you know, existent, but kind of ugly and messy. Jesus has to squint a little bit at my devotion. What a designation. Beautiful before Jesus. How does this woman get there? Why is she seen this way? Well, that's what this text is is really about. But before we jump into the story, I want us to see the structure of the whole text because this text is a sandwich. It's what we've uh, designated Markan sandwiches. You've seen them as we've been moving through this book. It's where they kind of have the the bread on the outside and the real meat in the center. We saw the story of Jairus' daughter. And in the middle of it, inserted right into the middle of the scene is the story of the woman with the issue of blood who comes in desperate faith to Jesus. Jairus comes in desperation. We'll see his daughter healed at the end, but in the middle, we're given this story that we're supposed to see this meat teaching us about desperate faith and teaching Jairus. We saw it in the story of the disciples' blindness in chapter eight, where they can't seem to understand who Jesus is and he says, what are you blind? And then towards the end of the section, Peter suddenly has his eyes open, and he sees, and he says, you're the Christ. And right in between those moments, there's a story of a blind man being healed by Jesus. And we see what it takes to see. It takes a miracle of Jesus' work in our life. We saw it in the temple story where it starts with Jesus teaching about a fig, going up and cursing a fig tree because it has no fruit. And then Jesus goes into the temple where their worship is fruitful and then he comes out of the temple and that fig tree is dead and withered. We see what happens through fruitless religion. The outside stories are the bread. The inside stories drive home the the point they are the meat to chew on. And that's what we have here in chapter 14, verses 1 to 25. We have another one of these sandwiches. At the beginning... And the ending, surrounding, and all the way through it, we have the bread. Which is what? If you look at the story, if you look at the text here, what does it start with and what does it end with? Verse 1, it was now the two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread. It begins and ends with the Passover meal. And in the middle, we have a story that almost seems out of place. Just inserted the story of this woman and her anointing, Jesus' head. Incredible devotion. Contrast against Judas. Two stories of response. Jesus' teaching about the Passover and what it means about his death on the outside. And two responses to Jesus' On the inside, one devotion, one betrayal. So I want to start this morning as we look at this text with the bread, with the outside, with the Passover scene. It's very clear from the very start of this passage that Jesus is kind of divinely manipulating the situation to make sure that he can celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples in an uninterrupted fashion. Despite the fact that we're told in the first verses that the Jewish leaders are out to get him, the scribes and the priests, they're looking for him. They want to apprehend him and put him to death. Despite that, he is going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, and he's orchestrating everything to make it happen. Look at verse 12 with me. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover... Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They're wondering, where's this going to happen? How are we going to do this, Jesus? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. It's almost this kind of clandestine scene. It's like divine espionage or something, isn't it? They're to find this man in the city with a water jar on his head, which, by the way, was very unusual. Only woman in those days, that was part of their work to carry the jar. So they would go and they'd find the one that stood out. Oh, there he is, there's a water jar on his head. And they would go to him. And he would take them to a man who has this secret room and they have to say certain words to him. And he will take them to this upper room where everything they need will be ready for the meal. And they will set up things for the Passover meal. If you're new to reading this, You're probably wondering, what's all the fuss about having this Passover meal? Why do they need to do that? I mean, Jesus is about to die. Who cares? But when we get to verse 22, when we get to the end of our text, we start to get it. We start to see why it's so important. Look at verse 22 and and notice the heading right above it. Institution of the Lord's Supper. You think it would say, well, they're going to eat the Passover meal. But it says, institution of the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus, what he's going to do here as he dines with his disciples is transition or morph the Passover meal from that final Passover meal to the first supper of the Lord in his kingdom. He's going to institute, bring in the Lord's Supper, as we know it today, that we're going to celebrate at the end of This service, it goes back to this moment. Jesus is going to show here how the Passover meal is ultimately all about him and his work at the cross. It's this teaching moment. He's moving towards the cross, and he takes advantage of this last meal to show his disciples what it's all about. Picture a slide projector, right? The old slide projectors where one picture, fades into the next. We're going to see the Passover meal transformed into the Lord's Supper. And to understand it, we got to start with the first slide, which is the Passover meal. We have to think about that for a minute. It was a meal of remembrance for Israel, for God's people, where they looked back to how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt. It hearkened back to the night of the 10th plague, where God sent his death angel to bring judgment on the land of Egypt. And every firstborn child of every family in Egypt would die, would be killed by this death angel, unless they sacrificed the lamb and took his blood, this pure innocent lamb, and took his blood and placed it over the doorposts. If they did that, their son would be saved. The life of the lamb would stand in the place of the life of the son and take his judgment. And that's what happened that night. The death angel came. The judgment came. But Israel was delivered. And their enemy was judged. And they were released from slavery by the blood of the lamb protecting them. They were brought into the land of blessing. And God then made a covenant with his people that they would be his people and he would be their God. And it was ratified with the blood of a lamb that was literally sprinkled on the people. And from then on, every year, they would have a meal, the Passover meal, to symbolically teach the next generation how God had saved them and made them his people that they would never forget. And every part of that meal was infused with symbolic meaning. The bitter herbs were to remind them of the bitter days of enslavement and misery in Egypt, The bread they broke together was unleavened to remind them of how they had to hastily leave Egypt for deliverance. No time for the dough to rise. There were four cups of wine in the meal, one for each stage of the meal, and and they were all uh, invested with, with a special toast of remembrance. The first cup was about how the Lord brought them out and they would raise their cup. And the second cup was how he he rid them of bondage and they would raise their cup in toast. And the third was about how he redeemed them and they would raise their cup. And the fourth was, and I will take you to be my people and I will be your God, celebrating that covenant in blood. And of course there was at the center of it a roast lamb, reminding them of the original lamb of sacrifice in Egypt, in Egypt that saved them from the judgment of God. This is the meal that Jesus has painstakingly orchestrated the circumstance to make sure he is celebrating it with his disciples just hours before his death. And then in the middle of the meal, as they're going through it, suddenly, Jesus begins to go off script. He takes the bread, and he doesn't say, hey, remember how this unleavened bread reminds us of our our forefathers' hasty deliverance from Egypt? No, look what he says in verse 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. I'm sure there was a pause. They all probably kind of looked up and looked across at each other. This is my body. This broken bread represents my body, which will be broken at the cross. He's fulfilling the prophecy on Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant that will be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. This is my body, he says. Take it. And then he took the next cup that they were supposed to make the toast, I believe the toast of redemption with, although it might be the fourth cup and verse 23 he says this and he took the cup and when he would given thanks he gave it to them and they all drank it and he said to them this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many he says this cup of wine represents his blood that's about to be shed at the cross for them, for many To bring them into a new covenant relationship with God as His people. He is their Savior. That blood of the covenant that was sprinkled to make that promise that they were His people was now going to be made with His blood for many. You see, He's taking over the whole ceremony, the whole meal, and he's saying to them, what you guys need to understand is this meal is ultimately about me. It's fulfilled right now in me. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. He's the pure life given, which will shield them and us from the judgment of God as he takes on all their punishment for sin and takes on their death at the cross. His life given will rescue them from their enemy, the true enemy, the devil, and enslavement to sin. His sacrifice will open the way, not just into the promised land, but into God's eternal kingdom. As he kind of mentions in verse 25, with that final cup. He's saying to his disciples, look guys, you no longer are going to look back to that day in Egypt as the day of your deliverance and salvation that will no longer define you as God's people, but you will remember me and my work at the cross, my life given for you. It's incredible. And if you think about it, it's either the most incredibly arrogant, presumptuous, blasphemous thing anybody could ever say, Everything that you guys are about, your whole history of salvation, it's about me. That's what he's saying. If it's not true, blasphemy. But if it's true, it's the most awesome news ever. Not just for them, but for us. For many, as he says. And considering we know the rest of the story as this gospel plays out, we know which one it is. That's why we're going to celebrate at the end of this service, not the Passover meal, but our Lord's Supper. The remembrance of the day of salvation, our day of salvation at the cross. But the question is, what should this mean for our lives? How should this affect our lives? I mean, besides the fact that, that we celebrate in this liturgical form, communion as we call it, and we, and, we, and we have this remembrance meal at least monthly, besides that, how should this really change us? If we get this, if we understand that all of that history of lambs, of sacrifice for sin is actually teaching us about Jesus, that he's the pure Passover lamb. what he did at the cross was take our judgment and win us life with his life if we understand this in its fullness how should it affect and shape our lives well that's what the center of the text is about guys that's what the meat in the center the responses we see to jesus are all about we have these two characters this woman And Judas, one who gets it and one who doesn't, and we see what their lives look like. So first we see this woman in verse 3 and following. I'm not going to read it again because we read it earlier, but Jesus is in Bethany at Simon the leper's house. Scholars think Simon, they don't know that much about him, but they're pretty sure he was one of the lepers that Jesus healed, and he's having him in for this meal of appreciation. And according to John's Gospel, the disciples were there with Jesus, and so was uh, Mary, uh, excuse me, Martha, and, La- and Lazarus. Pretty interesting crowd. Lazarus, having just been resurrected from the dead, I thought that the conversation was pretty interesting. You'd be one to ask him a few questions. And the guests, according to tradition, are all eating in reclining position. That means there's not actually a table. There's a rug in the middle of the room with all the food laid out on it. And they lay down on the floor, kind of on their side, heads inward, feet spoked out. And they're kind of eating the meal, as they're, all their heads are together towards the center, towards the food. So picture them there. And we're t- told that as they were dining, a woman comes in. She's not named. But she's not an un- unknown woman. Because according to John's Gospel, it is Mary, the sister of of Martha and Lazarus. She is a woman who's familiar with Jesus, a friend. She's most likely observed quite a bit of his life, sat under his teaching on many occasions. But on this occasion, she has with her a bottle of ointment. It's it's nard, it's a very expensive aromatic perfume that was imported from India It's sealed in a glass bottle, sealed in a way completely sealed. You have to break the neck of the bottle to get to the perfume. It's actually very, very expensive stuff. Scholars believe it was probably a family heirloom that had been passed down to her, probably her inheritance, pretty much all her her wealth, that, that nest egg her future security. In fact, we're told in the text that it's worth 300 denarii. That's like a year's wages, like $30,000 or something like that. It's everything. And suddenly, probably quietly, as they're all talking, she breaks the neck of that vessel and begins to pour it over Jesus' head. All of it. You can imagine the scene. You can imagine the moment. People probably stopped mid bite as they smelled the aroma of that perfume and saw the oil running down Jesus' head and into his beard and onto the floor. A little awkward silence, and then the murmuring began What has she done? What a waste! The disciples began to scold her. Do you know how much that was worth? Of course she knew. It could have been sold and the proceeds could have been given to the poor. In fact, according to John's gospel, do you know who led that scolding? It was Judas. This is what it says in John's gospel, chapter 12. This is Judas speaking. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas is leading this scolding. It wasn't because he was worried about the poor. He just wishes the wealth had got into the money bag so he could skim his portion. It's important to note this because it's easy to get caught up in in what they're saying and and think, yeah, that money could have been used in such a a better way to help the poor. Doesn't Jesus care about the poor? Of course he does. He commands throughout the scriptures that his disciples repeatedly to take care of the poor. That's not what this is about. And then in the midst of all this pious, indignant, righteous scolding, Jesus speaks. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Judas, you want to give some of your money to the poor? You can do that any time. You can give some of that money you've stolen out of the treasury, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She has done a beautiful thing. She's anointed his body beforehand for burial. In other words, she gets it. Jesus has spoken very clearly to his disciples over and over about his death. If you've been with us through the study of Mark, you've seen him bring it up and speak about it plainly to them his crucifixion, how he's going to die, how he's going to give his life as a ransom. But they hadn't a clue. They argued with him about it. They told him he was wrong. But this woman gets it. That he must die. And that it's imminent. It's about to happen. She's the first one in all the New Testament accounts to realize that the gospel, the good news as it's talked about right here, will only be realized in the bad news of Jesus' suffering and death. That salvation will only come as this king, this Messiah, this anointed one suffers. As this anointed one is counted amongst the transgressors in death. She gets that the Savior King will be the Lamb of sacrifice for her in the world. She understands the cross before anybody. So what does she do? She anoints him. She honors him. How does she do this? Does she say, here, Jesus, uh... I understand that, that you're going to die for me, for my salvation. So here's, um, here's half my wealth. Uh, here's, here's a few of my talents. Here's one-third of my ambition and time. And here's a smidgen of my, my love. I, could, I can't give it all to you because there's a lot of things to be done that are important. And, but this is what I could do now. No, it says she did what she could. She gave everything she had. Reminds me of the the woman at the temple, the old woman, right? Where she throws in the two pennies. She gave everything. It wasn't about the amount. It was that it was everything she had to live on. It's an act of real belief, total devotion, impractical, pure love. And Jesus says it's beautiful to him. Beautiful devotion." My mom loves to uh, recount the story of a gift she once got from my brother. This is one of the good illustrations that's about my brother. The other ones were about me. Um, she says that uh, she, uh, ha- uh, many years ago, and my brother was just a little guy, I think he's about four, she had won at a party this designer recipe box. I guess it was really cool, really unusual, kind of a conversation piece. She loved it, and it inspired her to uh, go to her drawer full of all these random recipes and write them all out, you know, nicely on cards and fill this box up. She spent hours doing this and finally got it done. Had it there on the counter, and then her birthday came. And she went out with her friends for her birthday. And when she came home, she walked in and her recipe box wasn't on the counter. And she was just about to yell out, hey, where is my box? When my brother came into the room and he was standing there wide-eyed with his hands behind his back and water was dripping from his hands. And she said she knew in that moment that he had her box. And he said, Mom, I have a birthday present for you. And he brought the box out, and he had washed it and scrubbed all the designs off it and covered it in foil. And he had put inside it uh, his plastic alligator and a nickel and a picture of himself. (laughs) And by the way, he'd thrown away the recipes, and the garbage man had come and taken over. But my mom still has that box to this day, right? It's one of her treasured possessions. It's beautiful to her. He loved Mama. He wanted to give her the best stuff he had. And from the outside, it just seemed like a waste of a good recipe box. My friends, if we truly get the cross, we will give Everything, complete sacrifice, beautiful devotion is the only adequate response for a life that's been redeemed by God. Everything. We are not to miss this. Jesus says this in verse 9, doesn't he? Look what he says. And truly I tell you, truly I say to you, Wherever the good news, the gospel, the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She shows us a life that truly gets the good news. She shows us and the world a beautiful devotion to Jesus, the heart, really, of, of Christian worship, a heart that understands the cross. And, you know... I think Jesus highlights this moment. I think he he says that this will always be remembered, which is kind of cool because it's so true. We're remembering it right now. And he wants us to see it because it's so easy for us to miss. Even if you call yourself a Christian, it's easy to have a form of Christianity that doesn't really get it, and is only semi-devoted as long as this Christian thing serves us. I mean, that's what the rest of the murmuring disciples, and especially Judas, illustrate, don't they? In contrast to her. Contrast against this beautiful devotion, what we can't miss is this ugly betrayal of Judas. In the middle of this Passover setting, as Jesus is teaching about the significance of his death and what it means, we have these two responses, one so beautiful and one so ugly. Look at verse 10, right off the back of this story. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here Judas is. We're told, Judas, one of the 12, he's an insider. He's witnessed Jesus' miracles, the healing of the paralytic, Jairus' daughter brought to life, the calming of the sea, the feeding of the 5,000, Lazarus' resurrection, perhaps. At least he's heard about it from the other disciples. He's seen it all. He's been privy to all Jesus' teaching, even the insider teaching that was just for the disciples, so they would understand. He's heard about the cross plainly and clearly, but he does not get it. And when he senses the reality of its cost, when he realizes following Jesus may not actually bring him the good life, in fact, it may cost him. It may mean sacrifice. It may mean a life of hard devotion and costly witness. When he realizes that, he is out. He's looking for an opportunity. Do you see that? He sought an opportunity. He's looking for just the right time to betray Jesus and make a little cash on his way out. And of course, He eventually sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, which is about 600 bucks. This woman, everything she has, 30,000, her whole security, her whole future, she gives in devotion to Jesus because she gets the cross, she gets the sacrifice. Jesus portrays him for 600 bucks because he doesn't get it. Maybe he doesn't see the seriousness of his sins so he feels no need for the cross. Maybe he he doesn't believe that Jesus' life is is enough and he doesn't trust in his, his lordship and his power over his death. Maybe he can't see past his own greed and the allure of material wealth. We don't know exactly what it is. But whatever the case, it's a warning for us. Proximity to Jesus and the things of Jesus hearing his teaching hanging with his people even the insider church circles even witnessing his miracles or the testimonies of, of his miracles and people's li- changed life, is no guarantee that Jesus' work on the cross has really taken root right here so that you really get it So that you've really given yourself over to him. How would you describe your devotion to Jesus? Now you may say, well, you know, it's it's not like Judas. I mean, maybe it's not quite like this woman, but it's not like Judas. It's probably somewhere kind of in between. That's, between. That's what I would say. But here's the thing, each one of these disciples will sit at that table in verse 19 when Jesus announces that one of them amongst him is going to betray him and they'll all say, very sorrowfully it says, is it I? In other words, not me. I would never do that. But each one of them will desert and betray him in the next 24 hours. As the cross looms, not out of greed, mostly out of fear and cowardice. You see, we all have a Judas heart in our sin. But that's what's so beautiful about how this passage ends. Jesus has divinely orchestrated this, this meal to make sure they have it and he can teach about the cross so that he can show them one last time in the most beautiful and profound way what he's all about. That he's the Lamb of God who will take on our judgment. And rescue us from the wrath of God and give us life. It's the most beautiful devotion of all. That's what the cross is. Dies for us while we are yet sinners, deserters, betrayers. This is my body. This is my blood. Given for you. Do you get it? Are you striving to give Jesus everything, your whole life? Is this your desire even as you fail almost daily? Do you say, Jesus, here it is, dripping wet. Here's my life. If so, then come to this table with us now. And let's remember our Savior's beautiful devotion together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your devotion to us. For loving us as betrayer sinners. For taking on all our judgment. For taking... Our deserved wrath for rescuing us out of, out of enslavement, the enslavement of our sin, and an eternity of death and hell, for giving your body and your blood, your pure life in our place. Help us to come now to your table and remember truly getting it, feeling the weight of our sin, knowing the depth of, our, of your suffering, and experiencing then the joy of our salvation. And out of this, may we go from here living lives of devotion that are beautiful before you. Amen.